0: Well, greetings and welcome to the Steve Day Show podcast powered by Conservative Review. Steve is gone. He'll be gone today and tomorrow as well. He's got a speaking engagement out uh, with some uh, youths, the youths out in the western United States, out in Idaho, I think is where he is. And uh, so, again, he'll be gone. Hopefully, God will use him in some uh, really cool ways over the next couple of days speaking at a conference. Instead, it's just lonely old me. At least for right now, Todd has taken off. I've let him go and have a little bit of extra time the rest of the day. And instead, what this podcast will be is kind of something that uh, I, I like to do. I like to feature when Steve is gone. I like to go back and find some old speeches and talks that he's given and kind of juxtapose what he says then with the way things are now. And I'm going to let you do that for yourself in just a few minutes. Before that time, though, I just want to let you know that today's show was kind of a surprise. Todd and I did the Mystery Science Theater 3000 treatment to last night's ESPY Awards. We thought we were going to come on. We thought we were going to crack wise. We thought we were going to troll the left. And what happened was actually really surprising. We did still play SP bingo and we did get a bingo. So you want to you want to pay attention to that. Uh, That was kind of fun. The rest of the show, though, we just kind of uh, talk about what we're seeing on this award show. And again, I hate award shows, but uh, the result was kind of surprising. If you like, please leave us, if you like this podcast, please leave us a positive review. Wherever you're getting this podcast, whether that's on Stitcher or iTunes, you can leave us a five-star review on Stitcher. Leave us a written review, a comment, uh, give us a couple sentences and a couple minutes of your time that really helps us out and helps other people get this content. If you like it, why don't you help somebody else get it as well? And if you want to see the TV Show, you can go and do that. Subscribe CRTV.com slash DACE using promo code DACE. Well, without further ado, Thursdays are usually Theology Thursdays, but when Steve's gone, we kind of do whatever we want. So instead, I found a speech that he gave to Colorado Right to Life back in 2012. He's talking about the tactics of the pro life movement, and I want you to hear his assessment back then and maybe compare it to what you're seeing now. Again, I'm not going to provide any commentary other than to say goodbye afterwards. I just want you to listen. I think it might be kind of interesting to see what has changed, if anything, about the pro-life movement in the last six years.
1: You know, one of the things I love about being around people like Greg and Bob is, you know, I've had a chance over the last year or so since our show became syndicated to be involved in a lot of the insider meetings that you guys maybe read about or hear about. I've been in meetings with groups of, in some cases, billionaires trying to get together. How do we get a guy elected president of the United States? Uh, The meetings you see of uh, the the pro-family leaders that happen in Texas and Washington, D.C., I actually get invited to these meetings now. I've had a chance to be in on some of these meetings. And you know what's interesting, and, and it's fun for me when I come to an event like this, is it's fun that I'm not the radical in the room this time. I mean, if I'm in a room with Greg and with Bob, then I know I, I get to be the moderate for a change. I get to be the good guy. I mean, I know when I walk in this room, because when I walk in those other rooms, I can, I can almost hear the eyes rolling, like, oh, no. Here he comes again. This is the guy that's going to ask us the questions we don't want to have to answer. I think I'm, I'm earning a nickname that guy. That's sort of what I am. I'm I'm sort of that guy. Um, But one of the things I can tell you, having been involved in a lot of these conversations and meetings, I'm going to tell you it's it's worse than you think it is. It is worse. Worse. Much worse than you think it is. I'll I'll give you an example. I was in a meeting with a group of uh, Christian uh, conservative leaders from around the country, a couple of whom their names you would know. And the topic of the meeting was, this was last winter or last fall, the topic of the meeting was trying to get our people to coalesce around one candidate to stop Romney from being the Republican presidential nominee. Now let me tell you how this meeting began because almost all of these meetings that I've ever been in in the last year almost all start the exact same way. It begins with everybody going around the room and everybody tells one another just how important they are. Well, that's not exactly how it's phrased. It's phrased as tell us a little bit about you and what you do. But we're guys, we know what that means. Every man, ladies I can tell you, every man in the known universe, regardless of belief system, breaks every situation down into three questions. What is the game? How do I win? What are the rules? That's it. And it doesn't matter whether it's what we're, what we're having for dinner tonight, um, you know, how do I have the night end the way that I would like after the kids go to bed, uh, how do I please my boss? Whichever the situation is, every man wants to know What are the game? what's the game, what are the rules, how do I win? You get two pastors together. What's the first question they're going to ask one another? Hey, how many were at your church last week? We're guys. That's what we do. We're constantly measuring ourselves against one another. So when you go around in a room with a bunch of power brokers and wannabe power brokers, and you ask them, well, tell us a little bit about yourself. That means show us your Cub Scout badges. Show us that you belong here. Show us that you're important enough for the rest of us. So we spend a half an hour, everybody, doing that. Everybody earning their street cred, their Christian street cred in the room. Except this one meeting started just a little bit differently than all the other ones I've been in. This one began with a devotional. I know what you're thinking. That was different? You bet it was. I can count on one finger how many of these meetings have ever began with prayer, and it was this meeting. They almost never begin with prayer. In fact, they will usually end with prayer, and it usually goes something like this. After we've gone around the room and everybody's told everybody how important they are, and everybody comes up with what their plan of attack will be, usually nothing gets decided because you can't get everybody to agree because everybody's so important, don't you know? But just in case you come to some kind of consensus, and the consensus is, let's have another meeting where there will be no consensus. And then the meeting will end with, well, let's pray. It's a cane like offering, where we offer to God what we're willing to give Him. God, this is our plan. This is what we think we're going to do. Now bless it. I call this works with faith, not faith with works, and there is a difference. A work with faith is where you get together with your human ingenuity and your human intuition. Listen, I'm not good at a lot of things. Being smart is one of them. I know I'm really smart. And I'm not bragging to you because I can't take any credit for it. I was born like this. It's like me taking credit for being smart. It's like Shaquille O'Neal taking credit for being seven three. He can't take credit for that. He was born like that. He's always been the tallest, biggest, fastest guy ever since he came out of his mother's womb. He was made to be what he was. This is what I'm made to do. I can't change my own oil, but I'm pretty good at this. Okay? So you get a bunch of guys together who all claim they're really smart. And then they all turn around and say, all right, God, now that we have come to a consensus of what we're going to do, here is our plan, and since our motives are so righteous and pure, and since we're so much better than that which we're trying to defeat, God, we know that you will bless us. Now, I've been in these meetings several times. You wonder how many of these meetings God's blessed? It's a low number. Take a guess. Zero. God's never blessed it. Now this one meeting was a little bit different, because it began with a devotional. Since I was the radio guy, even though I don't have the classic radio voice, they asked me to read the devotional. And the devotional was, David slaying Goliath. David goes down into the Valley of Elah, and he says, so that the world may know that there is a God in Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that says these things and stands against the Lord and His people? So I read this devotional and then the meeting goes on, three hours, the food was pretty good, three hours, planning and nothing. Finally it was time to take a vote, see if we can get a majority, will we support a candidate or not? And at this point in time I had not made up my mind on whom I would support. We had not yet done the personhood presidential pledge, that would come later. and everybody stood around and they said you know how much money has this person raised or what do the polls say about this person and then it got around to me and since I spoke first with the devotional this time I got to speak last and I said listen I'm not gonna name a candidate I'm gonna support because I really don't think God cares so much about which candidate we support here in this room as much as I think God cares more about how are we coming to the decisions we're coming to here Not so much what we think, but why we think it, as we like to say on my radio program. See, I really believe faith is a paradox, and if you're a Star Trek fan, you know what I'm talking about. In a paradox, you are judged not so much by your answer, but how you came to that answer. How you relate or handle the question. For example... I posted a story written for my website today from another nationally syndicated host, Todd Friel of Wretched Radio, responding to a congressman in my home state, Steve King, saying, Mitt Romney prays to Jesus, just his Savior, just like we do. when well, he does not. And Todd Friel was correcting that. I post a link to that story on my Facebook page, Seething Begins from People. Why? Because they're concerned this may cost us the election. They're not concerned about whether this is objectively true or not. They are concerned about whether this will alter the outcome that they prefer. I'm sure somewhere in the sewers of China or other countries where Christians are persecuted, they'd love to have the luxury of accepting truth on on the basis of whether it's convenient for them or not, like we do today. But they don't have that luxury because they live in oppression. Sometimes I wonder if we almost have too much freedom. See, we do try to find the truth that is convenient for us, not whether it's objectively true. And so, I said to this group of men, all of whom, older than me, all of whom make a lot more money than me, all of whom have walls with accreditations and accommodations and com- accommodations that are much more full than my own. And I said, you know, you guys had me start this meeting off reading a devotional. And in this devotional, a 13-year-old boy doesn't even wear the king's armor and walks down into a valley and faces a giant all of the warriors of his culture are afraid of with nothing other than five smooth stones and a slingshot. And then it's almost like you guys didn't even have me read this devotional. It's like it never happened. So you had me start this devotional, this this meeting off with this devotional and then almost none of your decision-making process about what to do had anything to do with the devotional that we just read. And I see this disconnect over and over and over and over again. You'll ask Christians, hey, is this what God's word says? Yes. Is this what God's word says? Yes. Is this what God's word says? Yes. So then, Like Paul making an argument by the case of the building by the preponderance of the evidence, Paul says, "Since this is true, this is true, this is true, therefore we must do this." Right? And you'll walk through Christians with that, and you'll say, "Well, therefore, if this is true, we must do this," and they'll be, "Well, we can't do that. We we just can't." Well, why not? Well, it's just it's not practical. It's not pragmatic. We can't do those things. You mean it's not pragmatic, like a guy rising from the dead? It's not pragmatic like a sea being parted. Not pragmatic like that. Now what I love about what you guys are doing is you guys are tactical. I heard a lot of good tactical stuff here tonight. Guabi using his gifts as an attorney. Bob doing apologetics for the faith, keeping you informed. You know, sometimes I think people think if you're not pragmatic, that means that you're a windmill tilter. You just stand there and just pray everything away. And yes, prayer is very powerful, but we are still called to do things. And what I love about your group, and having known several of you before I got here tonight, is you guys have a very good balance of your responsibility and the sovereignty of God. You are setting an example that is being that is having an impact impact all around the world, really all around the country. And let me tell you something, what you're doing is very unique in Christian political activism. I can't think of anybody else that does it. And I probably know more of these leaders than maybe anybody in the room knows. Maybe even I might even know more of them than Bob now because of the show I do. I've had chances to be in these meetings with these people individually. I've observed them in their natural habitats, so to speak. And what I love about what you guys do is you move your faith beyond the theoretical to the applicable, to the practical. You are really acting on your faith. You are not bargaining for a seat at the table. See, I don't think we are called to get a seat at the table. I think we're called to go to a new table, to crush the old table. We do not pour new wine into old wineskins. We are a new way a new word, a new commandment, a new covenant, that we are a new creation. And if you want to know why we've lost the last 30 years, it's because we haven't offered any of those things. We've raised a lot of money, we've won a lot of elections, we've gotten a lot of people elected. What has that accomplished? Is the country better off than it was before we started? Think of all the things Christians got mobilized politically to fight. Are they better or worse than they were 30 years ago? Those of you that are old enough to remember, answer the question, what is it? Worse. worse. I can't tell you how many of our high-profile leaders I've had the, I'd almost say privilege, but I don't know if I'd call it that, of, of asking them that question. How come everything is worse than it was before you started? And the best answer they can usually give me is, well, it would be even worse had we not done what we've done. Who knows, that may be true. That may be true. I don't know, I, I, I'm not God. I, I can't make that sort of calculation, but you know what I can say? is you didn't win any of the points you attempted to win. Not a single one. I'll give you an example. They like to tout polling that says that the American people now are more pro-life than ever before. Really? Well, I did this once with a friend of mine who's a pollster named Scott Rasmussen, and I dug into this data. And Scott Rasmussen asked a question in a recent pro-life poll. He asked, should someone who commits an abortion be charged with a crime? And the majority of the American people said, no. "No." Doesn't sound like they're too pro-life to me. I suppose if everybody in my city said, hey, we're going to pass an ordinance that we can't kill people named Steve without just cause, but oh, by the way, we're not going to put any penalties on the crime in case someone violates it, I probably wouldn't feel all that safe. Now, see, what you guys realize here is that the real power in what we do is in the One. That is the real power. Let me tell you a little bit about the One. One of the reasons I'm here tonight is I went to speak to a group of Lutheran churches in my home state four years ago during an ice storm. And I almost turned back three times because the road conditions were very, very bad. But I really just felt like this was a group I needed to be at that God wanted me to speak to. When I got done, a man comes up to me in a wheelchair named Mark Moe. is his name. He had driven about an hour in an ice storm because he wanted to give me a DVD. Now in my line of work, I get DVDs and books and CDs all the time, and they usually go in the circular file. Because if all I did was watch every DVD and read every book and and listen to every clip all you folks send me, I'd be divorced, okay? I I could turn that into a part-time job. So, about three months later, Mark Moe sends me an email. And he says, hey, I'd like to get that DVD back that I let you borrow. And I'm like, ah, oh, snap. Because you guys almost never follow up, so I almost always get away with it. Right? So, I turn on the picture-in-picture in my man cave one night. And I thought, alright, I- I I've got to watch this DVD, so I tell this. I mean, the guy was in a wheelchair, for goodness sakes. I've got to watch this DVD. If he wasn't in a wheelchair, I might have just said, oh, I didn't have time. But since he's in a wheelchair, I've got to watch it. So I split the screen in half. I turn on my PlayStation 3 to play some MLB baseball one night. And I put this DVD on on the other side. And I thought, you know, I'll just have it on in the background so I can watch it. I'll come up with two or three catchphrases, and I'll mention them to him, and he'll feel good because he knows that I watched his movie. I get five minutes into this DVD, and I put down my controller turn off the PlayStation, and I'm like, I've got to watch the end of this. Because this DVD, it's the Rosetta Stone. It has, it has, it's answering all the questions I've been asking on my radio program for the last year. How did we end up here? You know what that DVD was called? Focus on the Strategy is what it was called. <laughs> One guy named Mark hands me a DVD made by one guy named Bob. And the one guy they handed that DVD to, his name was Steve. And he just so happened to have a 50,000 watt radio program that 60,000 people a day listen to. And he took those principles. I apologize for the Bob Dole third person um, invoking there. I took those principles. I implemented them on the radio program. I even spent one day where I played the audio of the DVD live on the air for an entire show, so my whole audience could hear it from stem to stern. I had meetings with people I knew, some who served in the state legislature, and I'd take them aside privately and I would show them this video. It had a tremendous impact on me. It's had a tremendous impact on the way we've conducted politics in my state since I brought it to everybody's attention. That's the power of just one the power of just one. Let me tell you about another one. This is a young woman, 15 years old, pregnant in rural Michigan in the 1950s. Not necessarily the most ideal situation. Her family takes her to a back alley abortionist, not once, not twice, three times, trying to have her baby killed. For various reasons, he's kind of a quack, some other things that go on. He's unable to complete the procedure all three times. They finally send her away to have this child. They give this child up, and it's one of the first babies that's ever put up for adoption by an organization known as Bethany Christian Services. A couple who at this point were unable to have children, World War II veteran, graduate of the University of Michigan Medical School, They adopt this girl, and they give her the name Mary. Now, of course, a lot of you have heard this story before. After they adopt, they have five other kids. (laughs) You've heard this a million times, I'm sure, right? Well, Mary, she meets a young man named Robert, who's in the 101st Airborne, 20-some-odd years later. They get married. They have a child. Her name is Amy. That's my wife. That's one. Let me tell you about another one. Fifteen-year-old girl pregnant from her high school sweetheart, late fall 1972. Many of her friends who are pregnant have already had abortions. Roe versus Wade happens just a little bit after that. She considers it. She decides, no, I I, I need to keep this baby. She's poor. She is what would have been called back in those days white trash. The young man that got her pregnant is from a very rich, powerful, prominent Democrat family in this city. His dad is a powerful district court judge who basically pays off her mother to be unburdened by this child because they don't want this fifteen-year-old piece of white trash marrying into their rich family. That young girl's name is Vicky. At 11.59 a.m. on July 28, 1973, she had a son, and she named him Stephen. That's me. That is the power of one. Stephen doesn't know who Amy is, nor does Amy know who Stephen is, till one day they meet on the internet, where all great relationships usually go to die. (laughs) They get married. They have three children, the last two almost die in childbirth. The son, the youngest in particular, he and his mom almost die. Again, that's the power of one. This entire family line that I am a part of represent the exceptions, all of them, that all of these politicians say we can negotiate on. And I think it's time we say to these politicians, why don't you come to my home, you can look at my three children, and you can decide which one of them didn't deserve to live. Maybe we need to put names on these children. They're not statistics. They're people. They're souls. And look at the tremendous impact they've had. One of them, my oldest, Anna, I would not be standing here today as a redeemed sinner without her because God used that little baby to break my heart. To see her one day in a crib realizing how screwed up and jacked up I was. And if this kid's got me for a dad, she's got no shot. And that broke me. And that led me to the cross. Again, that is the power of one from the one who leaves 99 behind to find the lost one. What you guys understand here is the power of one. Now, I should have been a statistic. In the last year, I've had Fox News, CNN, The Huffington Post, The Atlantic, ABC News, and Yahoo all say that I'm the reason Mitt Romney lost the Iowa caucuses in 2008. Now, that may or may not be true, True. but but if it is, I'll certainly take credit for that. What I find amazing is I barely made it out of community college, guys, and when I got to university, I, I majored in Super tech mobile. okay? I mean, I, I just, I, I'm, I should be a statistic. I am pure evidence of the power of one. One decision a young girl makes to have her baby, one decision a woman makes to say yes when I ask her to marry me, one decision a man in a wheelchair makes to hand me a DVD to have an impact, one decision I make to take that information and blast it out over a 50,000-watt radio station, and then one decision those who are listening choose to act on it. See, we've gotten this whole thing wrong on the life battle all of this time. We've been negotiating over how many it is can we save. When we should have been negotiating over why do anybody... Why do any of them deserve to die? The great abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison once said, As long as one man is enslaved, none are free. Doesn't sound like a very pragmatic statement to you, but it won a moral crusade, did it not? And that's the stance that you take. You understand the power of one. All these years, all we have done is argued the pro-abort, the child-killing position. We have argued over the quality of life, not the sanctity of life. The quality of life which says, if a child is born in certain circumstances, then it's still okay to kill it. I'm here to tell you tonight, there is no such thing as pro-life with exceptions, ladies and gentlemen. pro-life with exceptions is, is pro-choice with maybe fewer exceptions. We have two pro-choice candidates running as major party c- contenders for president this year. It's just one wants fewer choices than the infanticidists wants, but he's happy with killing some children as well. Well, maybe we need to remind them of the power of one. Maybe they need to hear more Joe Scotts, who has almost an entire nursery of children that she has connected with and God has used to save all over the power of one. So this is my encouragement to you tonight. I know you're going through some growing pains right now. Sometimes you seem like there's a great victory and then there's a setback, a great victory and then there's a setback. I can identify with this. Greg mentioned it. I'm trying to challenge an entire established order of syndicated talk show hosts who for the last generation have become nothing other than de facto spokespeople for the Republican Party establishment. I'm trying to challenge that. That's not easy to do. Some days it's like we can take on the world and other days it's like this is never going to work. It almost seems like in every time we're about to develop some momentum something happens like well they reject those signatures or this station decides they don't want it. I can promise you, you are making an impact. How do I know? Because last late November, I got a call from Bob, who basically said, listen, after what happened in Mississippi, we want to get back and connected nationally with the personhood brand. Is there a way we can do this through the Iowa caucuses? What if we put out a pledge? Could you help us with that? I said, brother, I promise you this, I'll have signatures in 24 hours from candidates on your pledge. Because several of them were calling my house at night, driving their tour buses down my street, Mm -hmm. calling me at home, begging me to endorse them, okay? So you know what I did? I got on the phone with your pledge, and I told these candidates, it comes down to this, if you guys don't sign this pledge, I'm going to tell everybody I know not to vote for anybody that doesn't sign this pledge. And in 24 hours, three of them signed the pledge. Now Bob is right. This is now where really our homework begins. We have to hold them accountable to that pledge. But ultimately, who's accountable for that pledge? They are. They signed it. They signed it. Now, this is an example of us raising a standard and asking those running for office to meet the standard, as opposed to what some of our leaders did again just this week in a letter they sent to Governor Romney that Jesus Peter Paul and no church father, I believe, would have ever sent or signed in a million years, basically begging him, to, begging him, please lower your standards, give us crumbs from your table. Folks, we serve the ruler of God's creation the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. First of all, how dare us believe we have the power to negotiate His authority to begin with. Did you hang on that cross? Did you die that death? Did you take on that suffering? No. How dare any of us believe we can negotiate that, number one. But then number two, foolishly, why would you want to? Now what I'm trying to prove by God's grace, and it's hard, but I'm trying to prove the same thing you're trying to prove. That we do not have to negotiate with the world to win because we've already won. Amen. And then if we just were to act like it, then God will bless our efforts. And sometimes against my best against my better efforts, God judges or God has, has has blessed the efforts that we've given. In 9 months, we're on 43 radio stations, including two in top 10 markets that carry all 3 hours of the program live. <laughs> They tell me, for somebody that's not a quote-unquote big name, this is one of the largest rollouts of a syndicated show they've ever seen. And I wish I could tell you it's because I have some kind of special sauce. Really all it is, is that I really believe in what we're doing, and ultimately I believe that I will be held accountable before God and not any of you. And then if I just do what God calls me to do, the rest will take care of itself. It may not turn out the way that I would like or as soon as I would like it, but it will turn out the way that it's supposed to be. And since all things work together for the glory of God and for those called according to His purposes, it will be good. And what I love about what you guys are doing is that's the same modus operandi, the same methodology that you have. My prayer and my encouragement to all of you is that you will continue with as much virtue and principle in your methodology as you do your ideology. See, that's where we've fallen down. We have a lot of strong Christians trying to do the right thing with the right belief system. But when it comes down to actually carrying it out and how they stand on it, the whole thing looks rather pagan. What you guys are doing is you're matching your methodology with your ideology. And that's why, despite the fact you're up against your own side half the time, You're up against incredible odds. You've had the impact that you have had in such a short amount of time. You're forcing the question no one wants to answer. Is that a life or is it not? Who's ultimately in charge down here? Who are we accountable to? Is it worth one life to sell our souls? So my encouragement to all of you tonight is not to change anything. Keep doing exactly what you're doing, and the way that you're doing it. At the end of my life, I have a goal, and I've said this to many groups many times. My hope is, when I die, my children will stand up because, boy, they see you at your best, worst, your most hypocritical. Boy, you want to be convicted, you want accountability partners, have kids. (laughs) They will hold you accountable, especially when you have a daughter you should have named Augustine instead of Anna. My oldest man, she can just cut through the quick, I don't know where she gets it. Okay. But they hold you accountable. They see you in your, uh, in your knickers, figuratively and literally, your best and your worst. And my hope is that when it's their turn, when it's their time to put daddy in the ground, that they will be able to say at daddy's funeral, The words that Paul says to his spiritual son Timothy at the end of his life. That daddy wasn't perfect. See, we think, and I think we get a bad rap, and sometimes maybe we do this to ourselves. We we give the system this idea that we want perfection. No one is perfect. What we want is integrity. Long obedience in the same direction. Consistency. That's what we're looking for. And that when my children put daddy in the ground, they will be able to say, Yeah, daddy wasn't perfect. But over the long course of his life, there was long obedience in the same direction, which is what being a disciple really looks like. And Daddy fought the good fight. Daddy kept the faith. And Daddy finished the race. And if they can say that about me, when they put me in the ground, then I believe I will get to hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. And my encouragement for all of you is to have those words in mind when this is done. Fight the good fight, keep the faith, finish the race. Thank you for having me
0: tonight. So that was Steve Dace's speech to Colorado and Right to Life back in 2012. What do you think? It's kind of interesting to hear perspectives from just a few years ago on things we're still talking about and are on the forefront of all of our consciences, still even today, if you are conservative, pro-life, anything of that nature. Well, thanks for listening today. Even though Steve was gone, we hope you enjoyed this. And until tomorrow on The Steve Dace Show, John 317. i